Well, thank you very much. Uh, my name's Casey, and I'm an alcoholic. And I want to thank uh, Bly for that kind introduction. And uh, and it's true, you know, uh, you put a couple of alcoholics together for uh, a brief period of time, and they start sharing about uh, the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they start talking about what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. And uh, before you know it, they feel like they've known each other for a long time, and uh, that, I hope, is uh, what's going to happen with uh, the rest of the people in this room in the next few minutes. Uh, I would say, without, uh, without knowing in advance, although I've uh, seen this happen before, that within a relatively brief period of time, you're going to know me better than uh, most of my blood relatives in about an hour and uh, because we are emotionally wired very much the same and uh, whether you've any you've been anywhere I've been or done the same the same things or not you're probably going to identify with a lot of uh, why I did what I did and uh, I'm not even going to have to tell you why I uh, <clears throat> I like to tell stories. I like to listen to stories. I think one of the reasons that I'm uh, one of the lucky survivors, the winning minority of people that get to stay sober for uh, some period of time is because of that exact reason. It's, uh, I always hated and feared people, but I love to hear, uh, I love to hear people's stories. And uh, I feel like I'm a real lucky guy. I feel like I'm not only... Uh, lucky to be sober for 13 years and three months, but that I'm lucky to be alive at all. You know, if I was a quadriplegic and deaf and dumb, I would still be a lucky guy. And that sounds like a crazy exaggeration, but you're going to believe it in a little while. And uh, so I want to thank uh, Hank and the committee for asking me to come here and participate in Kansas City. Uh, I was... Uh, a year ago at the, the Lake of the Ozarks, and I've never been in Kansas City for uh, for any length of time except at the airport, and uh, you know, just coming and going. And so it's delightful to be here. I feel like I could uh, come here and stay sober here, and uh, and fit right in just from the people that I've met uh, this afternoon and this evening. And uh, I feel also like I'm. Uh, I'm still uh, blown away by Beth's very powerful and inspirational talk just uh, a little while ago. It was uh, absolutely uh, spectacular to me and uh, very moving for me to hear that. And uh, I'm glad I'm here just for that. That's uh, worth the 2,000-mile uh, trip just for me, just to be here for that. And. Uh, I have heard uh, the other speakers on tape, and uh, I know them by reputation, and I'm looking forward to uh, an exciting weekend here. And uh, I feel like I'm receiving the baton from Beth and that I'm uh, running forward into Saturday, and uh, we'll see where it goes from here. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, and in order uh, that we all get in one more day of sobriety. And... Uh, I like to quote a uh, a friend of mine and a uh, sponsor of one of your speakers. His name's Cajun Joe from Golden Meadow, Louisiana, and uh, I heard him say it on tape. And I've met him uh, since then. And uh, he says, in his own inimitable way, 
I like to tell the boys I sponsor, if y'all come from a dysfunctional family, it's cause you was in it. And uh, I mean, the first time I heard that, I had never heard that expression before, and I had, I've heard it a lot of times since, but nobody says it like that. And uh, that's really the straight-from-the-shoulder information in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was, uh, I was saying that and quoting it to other people for quite some time before I realized that that's the story of my life. This, is a, this absolutely is the story of my life. I, uh, my parents were good people. There was no screaming at midnight around our house when I was growing up. Uh, one of the houses we lived in uh, when I was a kid, we lived in three different houses as my father's career progressed. We moved from Huntington, Long Island, New York, to Vernon, New York, to western Pennsylvania. One of those houses was a 12-room house with a fireplace in every room. We had two Cadillacs in the driveway. It was, uh, it was a picture postcard life. Uh, the nastiest kid that I knew of was Ricky Nelson on TV for sassing his parents, you know? This is uh, probably a pretty sheltered life for somebody that was going to be uh, wind up being a an alcoholic and uh, qualifying in every way for the program. But uh, I was the oldest of three uh, children, uh, still am. You know, I uh, we're all grown up now. I'm probably the most childish one of the three, even though I'm the oldest. And uh, my younger brother is a very highly paid executive who lives uh, outside of Chicago and. Uh, has a wife and two kids, and uh, my baby sister, who I still picture as being about this big with red pigtails, is uh, teaches at Columbia University, and in her spare time uh, is an editor of an art magazine. And uh, and then there's me. You know, I uh, <clears throat> it just seemed like. Uh, somehow things were not going to work out for me, that they were going to go, you know, everybody else was taking the yellow brick road, but I was going to take this shunt over here, and I was going to see, you know, what's over here? Why, why take that easy way? Let's go take the bumpy road. Let's drive through the plowed field. Let's take a chance. And uh, so the first thing of any consequence that happened to me was uh, two weeks before my eighth birthday, I got polio. And this was before the salt vaccine, and uh, I was crippled. My legs didn't work. Uh, I couldn't wiggle my toes. And it was no big deal. I was a little kid. Uh, the only thing that was upsetting to me was that uh, my parents were crying in the hospital hallway when they said that uh, I might never walk again. And. Uh, you know, I didn't know what the big deal was about uh, until I realized that, uh, in fact, I couldn't walk at all. And uh, obviously I recovered uh, through a thing called the Sister Kenny method. And uh, by the time I went back to third grade after months and months of being in a uh, hospital bed and then being at home, and uh, I actually kind of liked being crippled. Uh, you know, I was weighted on hand and foot. I was the little kid who had lost his legs. And, uh, you know, they had to bring me... Uh, everything, you know, food, and my third grade teacher had to come visit me and give me the lessons, and, uh, and uh, you know, when I, uh, it actually wasn't a bad deal, you know, I, uh, I suppose if I was a grown-up and had to be out there earning a living, I wouldn't have looked at it in the same light, but uh, anyway, when I got back to school, it seemed to me that I was treated differently, that I was shunned by the other kids, and I was treated as an outcast. 
And, uh, you know, I had had that dread disease. Who knew how it was caused? Uh, the parents were afraid of it. Of course, the kids were going to be afraid of it. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I was from the school of, uh, you know, you can't reject me. Screw you. I reject you first. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, so I went off to be by myself and to be a quiet, loner, geeky, outlaw, Martian little kid. And uh, I got real good at that. I, uh, I wouldn't talk to anybody else at all. I wouldn't talk in class. I wouldn't do any of that. Uh, I lived in a world of books. I read a book every single day, cover to cover, that wasn't a school book. And uh, by the time I uh, left home at age 17, I was a real odd, emotionally dwarfed, frightened, insecure person who had led a life in a, in a book. You know, I lived in a world of fiction. And I started off with, you know, cowboy novels and science fiction, and then I moved into psychology and philosophy and psychoanalysis and, uh, you know, all of this uh, really out there stuff. And, uh, and I was a pretty out there individual, although I tried to be the ultimate conformist because I didn't want to make any ripples on the pond at all. So, you know, I had not had a drink, and uh, boy, I sure could have used one. And I was going to find that out soon enough. I was at Penn State about 10 minutes. Uh, somebody shoved a can of beer in my hand. It was uh, Schaefer's of Philadelphia, the beer to have if you're having more than one. Was there jingle in those days? Should have read that label, you know. It's like, uh, warning. <laughs> You will drink for 21 years. You will not know where you are and what you're doing. <laughs> well, I had two cans of beer and I was rubber-legged drunk. I was in shape for cross-country season. I banged off the dormitory walls, went back to my room, passed out, woke up, and realized that if I was ever going to fit into my own generation at all, I was going to have to learn how to drink. That was my first thought, and I remember it vividly. I don't know where it came from, but uh, I think it has something to do with me being in this room today. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to learn how to drink. I didn't say, uh, gee, I'm never going to drink Schaefer's again. I'm never going to do this. I'm never, you know, I'm going to have to learn how to do this. And so I got into training to learn how to drink beer like anything else I was ever any good at. And after a couple of months of learning to drink that 3-2 beer at fraternity parties and events like that, I accomplished my goal. I learned how to drink without throwing up on myself or my date. All of a sudden, I had a social life, and alcohol had done it. And, uh, you know, alcohol was going to get an awful lot of credit for everything good that happened in my life for a long time after that. And, uh, you know, I felt like I had arrived. I felt like I had actually achieved something uh, worthy of note. And in my life, I had. You know, little did I know. It took me a while to gear up to it, but I became a daily drinker. And I was, uh, <clears throat> I was a daily drinker for the next 21 years uh, under circumstances where people normally wouldn't drink. Uh, you know, I was uh, hospitalized. I was in jail. I was in uh, a number of other situations. And I could almost always find something to drink because that was my A number one priority. You know, alcohol made it possible for me to walk out of the pages of a fictional book and become a fictional hero in my own mind. You know, I could become 
heroic, I could be saintly, I could be the protagonist of any story, I could be, uh, I could be anything. You know, I could be, I was bounded only by the limits of my imagination and, uh, and uh, the walls that were around me. And I tried to break down those walls in every way that I could. Uh, you know, a funny thing happened. Uh, we had uh, track practice one day, and uh, I, was, uh, I was pretty good at that. You know, when I was a kid, I noticed I was the fastest kid. After I had polio, I wound up being uh, captain of the track team. Well, every time you reach another level, you're not the best anymore. You have to train harder and work harder to go to beat the guys that you're running against. And uh, one day I ran a mile in practice in four minutes and seven seconds. <clears throat> and an assistant coach came up to me and he said, uh, Casey, at the rate you're going, you inevitably are going to break the four-minute mile within the next year. And uh, so keep up the good work. You know, you're on the you're on the track to uh, be the youngest person in uh, in history to run a four-minute mile, and uh, I remember vividly what I thought exactly when he told me that. I thought, he knows I can do it. I know I can do it. Everybody I run against knows I can do it. I don't have to do it. I'm out of here. And uh, I never ran competitively again after that season was over. You know, it was like uh, it was my uh, it was like my Catholic conception of sin. You know, it was like if you had thoroughly investigated this mentally, you don't. Uh, you know, you have sinned. You may as well not even bother doing it. You know, it's uh, <clears throat> you know. But I had it all. I had it all tweaked around. And uh, strangely enough, uh, I found out later that uh, two people actually did break the four-minute mile as schoolboy milers, and one of them is sober in San Diego, and the other one is uh, Jim Ryan of Kansas. And uh, I'm looking around the room. I don't see Jim, but uh, <coughs> keep an eye out for him. Uh, <coughs> I've run into other uh, other track uh, athletes in Alcoholics Anonymous too, and it's uh, you know we always laugh and point at each other when we see each other. It's a, when I finally did get sober, by the way, because in case I don't remember to tell you this later, I was uh, in, in the west side of Los Angeles going to meetings for less than two weeks when I walked into Ohio Street and I ran into John M. and I knew who he was. He had run a 355.9 in Belgium and of course this was one of my last holdouts against uh, fitting into Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought for sure nobody else in this uh, rummy outfit ever ran a mile in the lickety-split time that I did, and there he was, this guy that I'd read about in Sports Illustrated, and it helped whittle away at that feeling of being uh, terminally different and not being able to fit in. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, the good thing about not having to run track anymore was that it was happy hour down at the Rathskeller and uh, bring a sorority girl drink for free, it's nirvana. You know, this was my ultimate idea as this, uh, you know, increasingly pea-brained college kid of what a really, really good time was. And uh, so right before they kicked me out, I said, uh, you can't kick me out, I quit. You can't fire me, I quit. It became a sing-song line of mine for years and years. And uh, I bounced around a little bit more, and I wound up in Youngstown, Ohio, in the early to mid-60s. And, uh, you know, again, I wasn't there very long. Uh, Youngstown was a 
nice little uh, steel town, kind of a corrupt town that uh, was run by the mafia, which of course didn't have anything to do with little old white bread college kid me, but it was going to have something to do with me because uh, I wasn't there very long either, and uh, somebody shoved a stick of boo or reefer into my hand. Nobody called it uh, marijuana back in those days. Uh, this is back in the days when this was a felonious thing and that uh, there weren't that many people doing it. And uh, so I smoked this stuff at a beer blast, and the next day I woke up, and the only part of me that hurt was my cheeks from cramping up from laughing so hard. And I thought, uh, you know, I like this. Uh, and I'm loyal to the things that I like, and so I probably smoke that junk uh, every day for the next decade. You know, you can't get hooked on that little old marijuana, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, if noontime came and I hadn't had a little grass under uh, in the old brain pan, I got a little hinky, you know, I got a little squirrely. And, uh, and of course, uh, during the 60s, the whole pharmacy was wide open to anybody that cared to race through the doors and uh, and so I, uh, I did step through the doors and I abused everything that was available just like any good alcoholic would you know if uh, one is good let's try 10 let's try 20 and let's go let's go off the deep end and uh, and go crazy with the whole deal and I kind of like what Robin Williams has to say uh, he says anybody that uh, actually remembers the 60s wasn't really there, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of a lot of hearsay and old photographs, and uh, no, actually, I didn't have a lot of blackouts, and uh, I, uh, I have a good memory, and because, uh, because I liked... Uh, because I was living in this world of fiction, I was fascinated by uh, the kind of life that I had never lived as a kid. You know, I was fascinated by, uh, you know, this life in the raw, and uh, and I wanted to be uh, like a character in a Jack Kerouac novel. You know, I wanted to be on the road, and uh, this was all well and good, except uh, I kept running into reality every once in a while. Uh, of course, college had to go by the boards, and. Uh, and I got involved with a number of uh, felonious activities involving uh, the Italian Mafia, the Lebanese Mafia, various biker gangs, the Black Panthers, the Laguna Brotherhood, and uh, other people, it's fair to say, would not normally mix. And, uh, <clears throat> and I was good at it. Uh, being toxic agreed with me, and, uh, and I liked it. You know, alcohol... You know, I, make, I may make a lot of, uh, you know, snide or sarcastic remarks about what my life was like in those days and what the circumstances were, but in fact, I loved it. You know, I loved what alcohol did for me, and I loved it in combination with all of these other goodies, and uh, it was delightful. You know, if I could have a nice brand new central nervous system and I didn't know about the program of AA, I'd go back there in a hot second, but uh, <clears throat> in fact, uh, you know, there is nothing that could pry me out of Alcoholics Anonymous now, I hope, and uh, I hope to God that I never find a reason that I, uh, that I have to take that uh, fatal step away from Alcoholics Anonymous, because for me, sobriety equals life. There is no life without sobriety for somebody like me. and. Uh, 
as you will see shortly. I, uh, I, uh, I had to leave that town in a relative hurry one time. I got uh, things a little confused because I was, uh, you know, I was half in the bag all the time. And, uh, you know, I had a girlfriend uh, come up to me one day and say, uh, you know, Casey, uh, when you die, and it won't be long, I'm going to have you cremated and sell your ashes for $50 a spoon. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought that was kind of a cold shot, but uh, but I saw other people going, uh, uh, like to have some of them ashes, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'm hanging around with ghouls, you know. And uh, and around that same period of time, a friend of mine with a $200 a day heroin habit came up to me, and he said, you know, Casey, man, uh, your friends and I have been talking, and we're worried about you, man. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, you're a juicer, you know, you're an alcoholic, you just, you don't, you don't drink right, you know, you just, you just turn into this other thing, this other person, and nobody knows what you're going to do next, and it's really, uh, freaks people out, and, uh, I said, let me get this right, you want me to, uh, you know, go rob houses with you, develop this enormous, uh, heroin habit, and then run around and stick needles in my arm, and uh, meantime, I'm uh, eating a fistful of pills and drinking like a fish, and I'm, I'm happy as a clam. Now, why would I want to do what you're doing? You know, it's, uh, it's just some kind of reverse purity or something, and uh, he had no answer for that one. So I, uh, anyway, I had to leave Ohio, and I went to California for the first time, and uh, California was delightful. Uh, three of us uh, came rampaging into Los Angeles, and we moved in with a friend of mine that was living in a one-room, $75-a-month roach farm on North Vermont Avenue. Uh, seemed that he was raising 10,000 cucarachas in this dinky little apartment, but... <clears throat> But we didn't mind that because we were hardly ever there. We were at these uh, funky bars down on the Strip and where Holloway cuts down to the Sun Santa Monica Boulevard, if you know that area of town, and uh, where the Whiskey and Barney's Beanery and Rudy's and the Rain Check Room and all of those uh, funky places are, and, uh, and it was delightful. It was a great time to be alive, and uh, everything was going along swimmingly. Uh, I was... Uh, you know, I had given up uh, school, I had given up work, uh, you know, I had given up everything. Uh, I was uh, married for four years while living in Youngstown. We had a child. Uh, all of that had to go. And as those things drifted away from me, I realized that uh, for me, there was uh, the honorable thing to do was to try to keep myself and my friends stoned out of our minds for free as long as humanly possible. That was my idea of a noble goal, and that's what I set out to do. And uh, as crazy as that may sound today, this is back in the days when being called a freak was kind of a compliment, and uh, so it wasn't as uh, bizarre as it sounds. Uh, things were going along real well until my uh, buddy who owned that apartment got stabbed in the heart by his hooker girlfriend, and his family came and trucked him away. And uh, this was one of the best friends uh, I ever had in my entire life. This guy was a, a wonderful guy. He lived, by the way, and uh, 
You know, I saw him not long ago, and I thought, boy, you know, what I thought of this guy at the time was that uh, he was just somebody that couldn't take it. He was a lightweight, you know. If you if you can't go with the program and tough it out, you're just going to have to you're just going to have to fall by the wayside. And uh, you know, I'm quick to dismiss the people that were closest to me in my life, and quick to get rid of the things that. Uh, you know, whenever there's a fork in the road and on one side is some sort of accomplishment, achievement, maybe some success, productivity, and on the other side is drinking in combination with other chemicals or by itself, I always, always took the side that had drinking on it. And uh, that's, that's the story of my life right there. I... Uh, you know, when he got stabbed in the heart by this girl uh, in a brilliant alcoholic move, I decided to move in with her two best girlfriends who uh, were semi-professional party girls, and they needed a little structure and uh, discipline in their lives. And uh, so we set up housekeeping just off the Sunset Strip. We had an enormous two-story Spanish-style house just off the Sunset Strip with no visible means of support whatsoever. And... Uh, you know, we set out to have a nonstop party all the time, and uh, this was delightful. I, uh, by this time, I had run into uh, the children of some uh, mafioso from uh, Long Island, and they wanted to grow up to be just like Dad. So they had a bunch of uh, a bunch of white powder in the trunk of a car, and they wanted to uh, move this to the. Uh, the hip and cool people, but uh, you know they uh, they wore silk suits and carried nine millimeter automatics right there, and they didn't look the part, but I did, so I was the middleman, and uh, and voila, you know I'm involved in this nefarious trade, and uh, one of my customers was a mailman who was boosting major credit cards out of the mail and giving them directly to me, so my girlfriends and I could go shopping anytime we felt like it, and. Uh, this was a uh, terrific little scheme, you know, uh, I would uh, go rent a car and uh, and keep it, you know, there's no point in reaching, <laughs> no big rush getting these babies back, you know, it's rented in somebody else's name and, uh, you know, as long as you didn't use that credit card for more than 30 days, you're home free and... Uh, you know, uh, I could justify anything. I could rationalize anything. You know, we were we were liberating stuff from the hands of the uh, the filthy fascist pigs that were running this country, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm not going to bore you with the rhetoric of the '60s, but there was a lot of uh, a lot of loose talk and fuzzy-headed logic going around at that time, and uh, you know, whatever I could use was grist for my mill. Uh, the deal was, if you were so rubber-legged drunk that you couldn't walk when you were leaving a party at my house, I would give you your very own rent-a-car for free, with uh, the express understanding that the next time you came to my house, you owed me a car for free, no questions asked. And uh, so we had this uh, crazy, uh, you know, in and out the door constantly, all hours of the day and night. Uh, I was getting ground down to a frazzle. I weighed, uh, I got myself down to a very quick 130 pounds, which is 50 pounds lighter than I am today. And uh, as a friend of mine said, uh, you look like you're all eyeballs and elbows. And, uh, <clears throat> and I thought, yeah, that's that's about right. Uh, you know, the, it was a 
it was the center of everything wacky that was going on in my neighborhood and uh, how we weren't just swept up in a big uh, net and uh, dropped into the tank, I'll never know, by the uh, gendarmes of the time. But uh, a friend of mine that had been overseas exploring truth through hypnotherapy and psychedelics came back and uh, he was a bright guy. He, he had been the youngest first lieutenant in Vietnam and... Uh, he found uh, he found where I was living. He came to uh, he came to L.A. and discovered that I was living in this uh, crazy house. And uh, he came over one day and he said, "Oh my God, what's going on here? Who are all these people?" And I said, "Denny, this is great. You know, these are my patients. They call me doctor. You know, I'm shepherding these people through life." And uh, and uh, you know, he said, "What is that you're drinking there?" I said, "Well, this is a combination of Red Mountain wine, dollar seventy-nine a gallon, and uh, cheap vodka because there's not enough alcohol in the wine. So we have to add this vodka to it. Here, try some." And he said, "Boy, I got to get you out of here. This is crazy. This looks like uh, the Manson family or something here." And uh, I said, you know, I can't leave, Denny. Uh, you know, there's just too much going on here. You know, Hendrix comes to parties at my house, man. I mean, it's happening here. And uh, he said, you know, you're driving everybody crazy. You're killing yourself and all these other people. Uh, and uh, I said, you got a better idea? He said, yeah, we're going to join the Merchant Marine, and we're going to smuggle jewels and drugs from the South Sea Islands, and uh, let's get out of here. And uh, so I said, uh, I guess these people are going to have to fend for themselves. Let's go. And uh, the fair-weather friend that I was, we were off. And uh, so we uh, bounced around and uh, got kicked out of the uh, harbor master's office in the, the ports of the West Coast because they didn't want people like us cluttering up their office, much less in their branch of the service or whatever it was. I never got in. And uh, wound up driving a car to Joplin, Missouri, and... Uh, and then on to St. Louis and uh, drove, wound up in, in uh, the city of Chicago in an abandoned train station. And I had, I had a knapsack, I had a spare pair of boots, I had the clothes on my back. You know, I didn't have any more terrific bright ideas and I was living in an abandoned train station. And it was uh, actually a delightful building, nice high vaulted ceilings, uh, benches like pews about this high, you know. there's. Uh, and uh, you could go out and forage in the city and live off the fat of the land and then come back and live in your train station. And, uh, and that's the way I started living. And, you know, I wasn't homeless. I wasn't a victim of circumstance. Uh, I wasn't walking around looking at my shoes all the time. I wasn't depressed. I felt like, uh, I, felt like I was a Dharma bum, you know. I had read my Kerouac. I was, uh, I was a desolation angel. I was uh, a holy fool. And in fact, I was crazy as a bed bug, but I didn't know it, you know, and uh, nobody was coming up to me and saying, uh, you know, Casey, uh, you're in the grip of alcoholism. It's a chronic, progressive, and fatal disease. You have alcoholism. Can't you see it? Everyone that knows you knows that you have this, but nobody knew where I was. You know, I didn't drop, I didn't write any Christmas cards to anyone. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't make any long-distance calls. I didn't trouble my family. I didn't call them up. I had disappeared from the face of the earth. And uh, I didn't know until later that this was, uh, you know, of course they were troubled by all of this. They had no idea where I was. And when I was last seen, it didn't look like the prognosis was good. 
I was just out there somewhere. I wound up back in Youngstown, Ohio again, where I always wound up when uh, I was on the run because it was an easy place to go. I had a lot of friends there, and I was living in a crash pad. One day I had one dollar to my name. I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have a checking account. I had one dollar. And uh, <clears throat> at that time, the McDonald's cheeseburger was a 79-cent bargain, and uh, so was the bottle of Red Ripple wine. Not that pagan pink or that pear stuff. You know, this is the Red Ripple wine, that wonderful elixir of life. And I went to the liquor store, of course, got the Red Ripple wine, brought it back. I'm standing there in the crash pad cradling this stuff like it's a newborn baby because to me it was uh, as important as a new life. And I realized all of a sudden that uh, this Red Ripple wine really wasn't going to go very far. I just had one little quart of it. And when I was done, I'd have 21 cents and uh, the wine would be gone. And so I scrounged around that place and I found a syringe and I drew up two cc's of Red Ripple wine and I fired it into a vein. Because I guess I'm not a social drinker or something. I can't... Uh... Uh, nobody had to explain what any lengths meant when I got here to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not the kind of thing you uh, go into a bar and the bartender says, uh, would you like a glass with that? And you say, uh, no, you got a syringe? Uh, you can't, t can't tell your drinking friends. And uh, you don't go to the junkies and say, uh, I'm shooting wine these days. They'll say, get over it, man. Try this stuff. You know, let's go rob a house. I didn't do that either, so, you know, anybody, and, uh, and I'll tell you, I was five years sober before I told another living person other than my sponsor that I had done that, because for me it was a shameful secret, and uh, for us in Alcoholics Anonymous, we are as sick as our secrets, and I'm here to tell you that you can unburden yourself of the ghosts of the past by telling the things that you feel are your deepest, darkest, darkest secrets. To other members of Alcoholics Anonymous, when you do your inventory, do steps four and five, and you will be free from those things that, uh, that hang on to you, those notions. And after you do your amends, you, uh, you can really be free. You can really be free to continue to have a good life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you, for the newer people here, whatever it was that drove you long enough and hard enough to put you in this room today is all you need to get started on a program of recovery. You know, uh, shooting wine is not a definition of alcoholism. It was a desperate act by a desperate person a long time ago. Uh, I came back to California again, and I started getting arrested. I got three times in five weeks for drunk driving. I had not been arrested. You know, all of a sudden I'm introduced to the court system, I'm introduced to a diversion program, and I'm introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous all within a very short period of time. Uh, I remember the first meeting of AA that I ever went to, and uh, I'll never forget it. Uh, the impression that the, the people made on me in Alcoholics Anonymous was that the first feelings that I had were that these people are a lot like me. These people, I thought that I would never have a friend again who could possibly understand where I had been and what I had been doing. 
it would make no sense. All those people would be either dead or institutionalized, and uh, and I was wrong. There's a couple of million of them in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, at that time there were about a, a million in uh, sober people in the world of Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolutely amazing. Uh, of course, I didn't get sober right away. I had to go right down the slide of going through detoxes and all of that, and I wound up going through 14 detoxes and five live-in rehabilitation programs over the period of the next six years. Now, uh, uh, I'll tell you, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I wouldn't wish it on Saddam Hussein. That was a hard way to go and uh, really not a good idea, but it's what I needed to do. I had to have the good old sidewalk come up and slap me in the face over and over again for a cement head like me to get the idea that I could not reinvent the wheel, that being sober on my own in a vacuum was not going to work. I was going to have to come where everybody else that intended on being sober and actually functioning in the world was doing it, which is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know this, though. And so, of course, I had to try to do it my way. As soon as I would get sober for more than a day, that, uh, that intellectual arrogance would come back and I would be crucified by my own uh, thought processes. I uh, checked into a detox hospital in Long Beach. They did a blood test after five days and they sent me to an uh, in intensive care unit at Rancho Los Amigos in Downey. While I was there at this huge rehabilitation hospital, uh, they set up an in a, uh, interview with this ancient Chinese doctor who had like license number three to practice medicine in the state of California. This old man, he looked like Yoda, you know, he's a repository of wisdom, I thought. You know, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to, you know, call him sensei. He'll call me grasshopper and we're going to have this delightful Zen conversation. And, of course, it wasn't anything like that at all. I went into this guy's office, and he said, uh, Casey, uh, you've ruined your life. You have uh, done irreparable harm to your central nervous system, and in order for you to function well enough to go down to the Social Security office and pick up your SSI check, for which you now qualify, you're going to have to take some of these and some of these. And he held up antidepressant and antipsychotic medication, he said, uh, in effect, you have uh, burned the insulation off of your nervous system and uh, you are not going to be able to function in the real world without this medicine. And in order for you to take this for the rest of your life, I'm going to give you an open-ended prescription on us. No matter where you are in the world, you can tell us where you are, your name and address, and we'll send you more of these and more of these for free. I thought, gee, bad news, Doc, you know, uh, what's, what's the good news, you know, uh, what possible good news can there be? The guy is telling me I'm like a condemned building, I'm unfit for human habitation, and yet here I am in the one and only body I've got, and uh, so I left there and I tried to put a good spin on it. I had my pockets bulging with my newfound chemical buddies and I started taking them as prescribed and in fact even a little more than prescribed just in case a human feeling should try to sneak its way into my uh, consciousness. Because <clears throat> that's what I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand feeling like a human being. I had no training for it. I had no practice. I didn't have a normal life to go back to. All I had 
was, uh, you know, a tortured adolescence to go back to in my mind, and uh, that was untenable. That was a place I couldn't live, and so I had to live like this. Well, you know, after a few weeks or months, I don't know how long it was of taking this medication, I felt like a tree, which is kind of an insult to the trees. Uh, I thought, I've got to break out of this, and I drank a little gin and a little vodka and uh, mixed it all together, and I went berserk. Not a good idea to mix it with this medication. And, uh, and uh, to make a long story short, I punched another cop, and, of course, he's got a radio and a stick and a gun, and he's got eight buddies, and you're seeing double, and bang, it's back in the drunk tank again which I was now very familiar with in uh, the city of Santa Monica. I'd been arrested for all those drunk drivings, and after that I had a bicycle, and they, uh, they got me for drunk bicycle riding and took away my drunk my uh, <laughs> license to drive a bicycle. And uh, then they got me for drunk walking, and, uh, you know, they couldn't take away my feet, so... Uh, I kept getting arrested for that, and uh, one day I was asleep in a lawn, and the cops pulled up and said, come on, Casey, get in the car, and uh, I tried to escape through a hedge, and the hedge got all up in here, you know, and I'm hung up there like a scarecrow, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the cop comes over, and he says, uh, Casey, Casey, he says, you know, the master criminal is being captured by vegetation, you know, it's... <laughs> He had my ticket, I'll tell you. So, so it was off to lovely Camarillo State Hospital for uh, 10 weeks. Now, Camarillo is the nut house, the local nut house in Southern California, and this was not a good thing. You know, this was a serious time now. They had a substance abuse unit there and they had a program of group therapy which is a game which you can get good at and uh, I'm good at games. I like games. I'll get good at this game and uh, so I uh, mastered group therapy and in three days got myself elected uh, co-chairman of the patient's council and now I'm the second most important nut in the nut house and we're going to change things around here and nothing changed. Nothing changed. Uh, my of course, this grandiosity based on delusion was uh, just exactly that. And uh, But every day we had meditation time, and we all sat in a room like this, 50 of us, and we sat there staring out the window while they played a uh, record for us to meditate to. It was the same record over and over again every day. It was Judy Collins singing, Send in the Clowns, <laughs> over and over and over again. And, you know, this is, uh, if you don't feel crazy when you get there, wait a few minutes, you'll be, you'll fit right in. And, uh, and of course, on Christmas Day, the Hare Krishnas came in and sang to us, and, uh, you know, they, we were a captive audience. It's Christmas time, and here we are looking at, uh, you know, a dozen guys in their saffron robes and their shaved heads with the starter cord sticking out the top, and, uh, and they're banging and clanging along up there and uh, singing their little tune. And, uh, you know, it was really a Twilight Zone episode. And, uh, and so I thought, I recognize this song. And I got up and I thought, let's have a little fun here. And I started sashaying along to the music. And uh, a friend of mine in the first row said, uh, Casey, man, you better sit down. The staff is looking at you. And I said, what are they going to do, throw me in the nuthouse, baby? We're already here, you know. 
I mean, we are done over. We're crispy critters, baby. This is where they throw you when they throw you away. This is, this is it. And uh, and again, I was uh, I was revealing more than I actually knew I was at the time because I really I really believed that, and uh, and it and a lot of that was true. You know, when I left there, I started going back to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous with my three buddies that I found in the nuthouse. And uh, now four of us are coming into AA together, and we make this big banner that's eight feet long with big red letters that says Camarillo on it, and they, we wrap it around ourselves like a Taco Bell ad and go into meetings, and uh, just a salty-looking group of newcomers, and uh, just scaring people pretty good. But you know what? People in AA, you know, they've been they've been there before you've been there, and they've done everything. And uh, you know, they were very nice to us. They just kind of patted us on the head and said, "Keep coming back." You know, we really we care about you, newcomers. And uh, you know, have you heard of the meeting down the street? You know, <laughs> go scare them. And. Uh, but my buddies from the Nuthouse signed my big book, and, uh, you know, we, uh, I still have that big book. Uh, of course, we kind of drifted apart, and, uh, but I wound up uh, coming to a group on the west side of Los Angeles that I heard that you would never, ever want to go to. It was this uh, nasty Nazi uh, step group uh, called the Pacific Group, and, uh, and uh, oh, they just said terrible things about it. You had to run around and uh, be polite to people and shake people's hands and all of that. And, uh, you know, I would never want to do anything like that because I'm, you know, I'm major terminally hip with my black leather jacket and my boots and my knife and all this stuff. But eventually I wound up there and I got a sponsor. And the way I got my sponsor was uh, a guy, several people had handed me their, uh, their cards and a lot of people gave me their phone numbers. This guy's number said that he was a planner for Mattel Corporation. Now, Mattel's the one that makes that uh, Barbie doll and the Malibu Ken, and I figured maybe they can make a crazy Casey doll, you know. My <laughs> and that was my reason for choosing a sponsor because uh, of that, that wacky notion, and, uh, you know, I'd love to see this uh, a book of newcomer ideas sometime. Uh, you know, why I, did, why I did this when I was new, and... Uh, this this sponsor I got, uh, you know, he was really a wonderful. He was a wonderful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He still is. He moved away after I was about five years sober, but uh, and he's sober now in Boston, Massachusetts. Keith told me that uh, I was to get uh, I was go to to go to at least seven meetings a week. I was going to get commitments at all of these meetings that I was going to, and. Uh, and I became the designated cigarette butt sweeper-upper outside after meetings. And, uh, and that was exactly the perfect kind of commitment for a guy like me because I could be of service, I could feel like I was being a part of, and I was out there in the dark with my silent butler on a stick and sweeping cigarette butts in there. And as people walked by, all I had to do was say goodnight. And people would say goodnight, Casey. And, uh, and I knew that by the next night, somebody was going to have to sweep up those cigarette butts and I better get myself to a meeting right away because who was going to do that job that nobody wanted to do? And you, you know, after a couple of years of that, they had to pry that, uh, that broom out of my hand and 
then give me another commitment. You know, now it was time to sweep on the inside. You know, it was a big promotion. And, uh, but that's exactly what I needed. And, uh, and a big day for me was the day when I realized on my way to a meeting in Ohio Street that I was, I was actually excited about going to the meeting because I was going to see people that I was interested in seeing and they were going to be glad to see me. And it had been a long, long time before, since something like that had happened in my life, that people were glad to see me. And, uh, and for me, the big change was that I was going to be glad to see other people that were sober. A big change for me. My sponsor told me that uh, he wanted me to develop a habit of prayer. And uh, I asked him, uh, how was I going to go about that when my concept of God was an all-powerful lunatic who could hurl you into a lake of liquid fire for all eternity for eating a bologna sandwich on Friday. You know, I don't want this God to know where I am. You know, I'm not going to start praying and tip my hand. <clears throat> and he said, uh, I don't believe in the God you don't believe in either. And uh, he lost me on that one. But uh... <laughs> And then he explained to me what he meant. He said... Uh, what this in fact means is that you can come up with a higher power of your own imagination, something outside yourself that you can pray to so that you develop a habit, a habit of prayer by saying please in the morning and thank you at night. Please keep me sober today and thank you for keep me, keeping me sober today. And he said, you can pray to a doorknob if you want to. So I went home that night and I prayed to a doorknob and I felt like an idiot, so I thought I've got to come up with a cooler, higher power than a doorknob. And uh, so I went down to the beach the next day and I'm strolling along there because, of course, I'm unemployed, I'm new, and uh, I'm restless, irritable, and uh, just pretty crazy. And I'm thinking the sky, the mountains, the ocean, and bingo, I got it. I go to the meeting that night. I say, Keith, come here. I got it. I got this new higher power. It's the ocean. Let me explain it to you. He said, okay, make it quick. I said, uh, you see, it's got the waves. It's always coming into the shore. It's got the tides. It's influenced by the moon. It covers three-quarters of the earth. It looks calm on the surface, but underneath, the big ones are eating the little ones, and it's a vicious fight for survival. And he says, cut, 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 stop, whoa. said, another wacky newcomer idea, you know. He said, I wanted you to say please in the morning and thank you at night. If you want to have images of sharp-toothed fish in there, that's your business. Don't tell me about it. Just start praying to something outside yourself because you've been playing God for a long time, and it's about time you knock it off. And so I started doing that, and uh, thanks to him that I have a 13-year-plus uh, habit of daily prayer, and, uh, which has held me in good stead when uh, the people, the fallible human beings around me seem to not measure up to uh, my uh, occasionally ridiculous standards. And so I can, uh, I can be at one with a, uh, a God of loving compassion that has watched out for me in uh, drunkenness and sobriety, whether or not I wanted to even be aware of it. And... Uh, it's funny, you know, with uh, those uh, newcomer notions of uh, things like a higher power, how we all seem to come around to uh, an understanding of a higher power, of a, a compassionate and loving God. Uh, 
Of course, uh, I'm the guy that goes with the girl who had Beacon's moving van as her higher power when she was new, so it makes perfect sense in my little uh, in my little world. I uh, <clears throat> after that sponsor moved away, I got another sponsor. His name is uh, Johnny H from Long Beach, California, and uh, and he would say things to me like. Uh, you know, uh, if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting. And uh, that kind of circular logic. But I, I finally came to understand what things like that meant. You know, and he would say to me, uh, if you do what I do, you'll know what I do. And the more that I do the things that he does, I know what he does, and I know why he does it, because of the benefits that he reaps from these things. I... Uh, <clears throat> Got to take a quick drink here. It's uh, thirsty work up here tonight. I uh, <clears throat> I feel real lucky to be in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I uh, my sponsor got me involved in uh, in taking the steps. And in uh, in understanding the steps and repeating doing things over, uh, you know, I started. Uh, I had to go to work. I had to start making money, and I had to start making amends. I made a lot of money, and I started uh, paying an awful lot in amends. Uh, if you uh, were keeping track as I was going along there, I had some pretty expensive amends to make, and as soon as I settled in one place and started reporting things in my real name and my real social security number, all of a sudden everything started coming down on me all at once. You know, I used to have a big white Chevy station wagon I called the White Whale, and uh, as I drove down the road in my white Chevy station wagon, I would eat half an apple and throw it in the back, and it was all full of empty beer cans, and the, cigarette, the ashtray would get full, and I'd empty it in the back, well, getting sober was like slamming on the brakes. You know, all of that stuff came flying forward. It's all in my lap all at the same time. And uh, that's why I needed a sponsor to help me figure out which one of these dire emergencies I had to take care of first. And, uh, and he was very good at that. I... Uh, I... Uh, in all of those financial amends, there were emotional amends I had to make, and I finally came back into the, the uh, good graces of my family, but there were some things that I couldn't do. Uh, as, my, uh, as my mother lay dying of uh, bone cancer in 1980, I was uh, out of another rehabilitation center, and I was out of it less than a week, and I was drinking vodka and as she lay there dying I breathed vodka on her and I saw the pain and pity and contempt that a person that cares about an alcoholic feels and I saw it in her face and there was uh, I couldn't get this image out of my mind and uh, I had to learn how to make amends there and uh, he suggested that I write a letter to my mother that I take it to the grave site and read it and I did that, and it uh, it was good, but uh, there was still something happening there. Funny things happen in Alcoholics Anonymous. Things, you set out to do something, and something else happens. Uh, 
I was in, in Palm Springs sometime later. I was supposed to go to this banquet in Palm Springs, but I said that I would meet uh, Sharon and her son Wesley in Culver City. And uh, so I got in my car, I drove all the way to Culver City, about a two-hour drive, and uh, there was a carnival there at St. Augustine's, and uh, Sharon was helping the nuns who were putting on the carnival. As I pulled up, the police were taking away some gangbangers who had caused trouble uh, on the school grounds where the carnival was being held. And as I walked across the school grounds towards uh, where the nuns were in the school, I saw the hard looks on some of the people's faces, and I could see that there was the potential for problems still there. And I got inside, and uh, there were the nuns, and uh, they were counting the money, and they said, well, we have several hundred dollars here, and we've got to get it across the school grounds to the rectory where the priests can put it in the safe and lock it up. And we're glad you're here, Casey, because we want you to take this money across the school grounds. And, uh, and I thought, boy, you know, I'm going to risk my life for a few hundred dollars, but it was, uh, it was an AA request because two of these nuns were in Alcoholics Anonymous, so uh, I said, of course, uh, no big deal. And I started walking across the school grounds, and somehow a funny thing happened, and halfway across the school grounds doing something for somebody else because I had suited up and showed up and I was doing what I said I would do, I realized that my mother knew that I was sober and that I knew that she knew. And uh, this was an incredible, amazing feeling for me to have this, uh, this, this feeling that I could not comprehend, but all of a sudden it was as clear to me as anything. Because I had done what I said I was going to do, that I was helping these nuns, that my mother knew that unless... I absolutely, willfully went against everything that I knew, everything that I had learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I need never drink again for as long as I live. And uh, a healing took place for me that day that has uh, continued on for me until this very moment. And uh, funny things like that continue to happen in Alcoholics Anonymous. The things that don't make any rational sense, but if you do the things that you're supposed to do, they take care of themselves. I, uh, I told you before that I, uh, I uh, ran that mile in four minutes and seven seconds at Penn State. Uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Sharon, my girlfriend, said to me, uh, did you win a, a letter for doing all of this running around in circles? And I said, yeah, I, I did, but I was drinking, and I never... I never picked up my letter, and she said, well, why don't you do that? And I said, why would I want to do that? That was almost 30 years ago. And, uh, but I thought about it. She had planted the seed, you know. The, something ought to happen here. So uh, a member of my home group actually was an alumni of Penn State, so I got his alumni book. I called some of the phone numbers in there. I wound up talking to the assistant track coach, and uh, she put me through to the assistant athletic director. Uh, there were other, apparently other phone calls were going on at the same time, and, uh, and people had, uh, through the grapevine there, uh, 2,500 miles away, were in contact with each other. So by the time I got a hold of the athletic director, she said to me, 
you know, something funny happened this morning. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do until you called. An 8-inch chenille block S letter appeared on my desk. I've been here for 27 years. We have not given out letters in 27 years. We give out stadium blankets. We give out patches for blazers. We give out windbreakers. We don't give out letters anymore. I don't know where this letter came from, and until you called, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. But now I know what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to send it to you, and believe me, you are going to be the last person on earth to get a letter from the Pennsylvania State University because we do not give them out anymore. And so she sent me this letter, and uh, before she hung up the phone, she said, do a lot of little miracles happen in your life? I said, I don't know how to begin to explain to you. <laughs> and she sent a typewritten letter along with it, and I looked at it uh, just a couple of days ago to, uh, to actually uh, refresh my memory and to look at it again. And it said, uh, the gods must be looking out for you. And uh, I don't know how to explain to people how things like this can happen. It's just uh, I continued to suit up and show up and do what I was asked to do the next indicated thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. When people in AA ask me to do something, I try to, I try to never say no to an AA request. And uh, because of that... ...a life that I couldn't have had any other way. You know... Uh, it just occurred to me a couple of years ago, after being sober for a decade, that if I had continued on and never drank, was not an alcoholic, I couldn't have the life that I have today. I could not have the level of comfort that I have. It was not in the cards for somebody like me. I had to do all of the things that I had to do to drink and go right down the tubes in every department in order for me to hit bottom to even begin to let the people of Alcoholics Anonymous introduce me to a new way of life. You know, AA has given me a sense of purpose and a direction and a reason for being that I could not get in any other way. And uh, if you're new here tonight, I really suggest in the strongest possible way that you grab everything you can get in Alcoholics Anonymous jump right into the middle of the action in your home group get that sponsor get that book and do the things that we do here and you can have a life that is truly beyond your wildest dreams and I want to thank you for listening here tonight thank you very much mm -hmm.